Uh, those who are just entering, if you could come up front so we can see you and so we're a little bit closer, that would be great. And you can join us at this table. We're really, uh, you know, not needing this to have a whole table to ourselves. <laughs> Great. Well, um, my name is Vix Gabriel. I'm with the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience, and um, I'm thrilled to be here with uh, Lisa Junkin from the Jane Addams Hull House Museum and uh, with Barbara Lau from the Pauli Murray Project at Duke Human Rights Center. And um, we thought we could just start by actually um, asking you all, uh, a few of you, to respond to the idea of what you thought um, we meant by activating places of memory. So if anybody just wants to share. Anyone? What you'd like it to be. <laughs> uh, making the history at a particular site uh, relevant to contemporary uh, concerns Great, thank you. And if, and if everyone can just say their name and you know where which institution you represent, that would be really great. Marty Black with the National Park Service. Great. Anyone else? Yes. Catherine Bagal, Harpers Ferry National Historical Park. Yes, I was kind of hoping that maybe you would touch in or explore the idea of the sacred. Um, because uh, maybe a lot of sites have um, a lot of information and facts, but what is the sacred behind that? Because I think that's really compelling. Nice. You know, when you stand in a place, um, what is that human connection that makes a difference? So I'm, I just, uh, because we're recording, I'm just gonna quickly summarize. You asked about um, what is, sacred about places, and how can we use them to make the human connection? Yes? David Crossan, formerly California Historical Society. Uh, the interaction between a site forming memory and a site being formed by memory. Mm. Mm. Great, great points. So the interaction between a site uh, forming memory and uh, one that's formed by memory. Yes, I see a few hands right in the back, and then. Uh, Bill Lamar, Mount Bill, Archaeological Park of the University of Alabama. Um, I think looking for ways that we can move beyond um, cognitive learning in our educational presentations towards affective learning, mm -hmm. where people have emotional learning experiences and insights. Great. Yes. Great. Someone else had a hand up. Yes? Great, great. Um, well, um, these are all excellent questions. 
complex questions, big questions, and I can tell you right now that we're not going to find the answers to them today. <laughs> but, but we're going to try, um, and I'm really hoping, uh, the three of us are really hoping that we could have um, you know, a really rich conversation about some of these questions uh, while we share our experiences. Um, what we're going to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience uh, and share a couple of examples of how um, sites of conscience are um, activating their sites, these places of memory, in different contexts and from different approaches. Um, and then I'm going to invite um, Lisa and Barbara to share their experiences with their particular sites. Uh, and then uh, I hope we can have, um, you know, a really good conversation. And, um, you know, if you, if you need to stop us, if you have a question, please do. Uh, but if we're really kind of delving into some of these bigger questions or the more complicated ones, perhaps we can just save them till the end. So again, uh, I'm Bix Gabriel. I'm with uh, the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience. And uh, you know, I think one, just to start with, I think something that to state something that you all know, I'm sure, is that um, places of memory are magnetic. They're important. They draw people to them in large, large numbers. Um, just last week, when the 9-11 National Memorial opened, people came from everywhere, um, all around. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that they came for different reasons. If you look at the pictures, you can see some people came for remembering, for healing, for mourning. Uh, some people came to protest. Some people came to reflect. Um, and I think um, you know, one of the things that we'd like to talk about is uh, people come to places of memory, from historic homes to national monuments. Uh, but they come for different reasons. And places of memory have, therefore, a responsibility um, to uh, be these things for people, where they can find uh, in, for themselves um, inspiration, uh, uh, reconciliation, healing. But can all places be all things for all people? I mean, this is a question that we all have to deal with at, at our sites. Um, one of the things that's clear is that uh, places of memory obviously have the power to help us remember the past. But they also have the power to shape the present. And um, please come in, come and sit, have a seat wherever you can find room. Um, and until even a decade ago, um, museums were still seen primarily as places renowned for their collections of impressive objects. Historic sites were seen as monuments to not just preserving the past, but protecting the past from the present. And in this context, um, nine directors of historic sites came together to challenge this view and to forge a new vision for historic sites. This group of nine included venerable heritage institutions like the US National Park Service, the British National Trust, uh, which runs the workhouse. And these were sites who were seeking to make their work more relevant to a changing audience um, and a changing world. There were also part of this group of nine uh, human rights activists uh, who had been using memory to, for uh, accountability. This, for example, is Memoria Abierta in Argentina, which is a group of human rights um, activists that were using the memory of those who were disappeared during uh, the dictatorships um, to demand um, the trials for perpetrators. Um, the Gulag Museum at Rus in Russia is the only uh, Stalinist labor camp to be preserved as a museum. 
And uh, they were, had been witnessing the power of memory to begin to heal rifts between, uh, between members of society across the divisions, but also uh, to start to talk about a larger national history. Um, and so, you know, these were all very different institutions. They were coming together for different reasons. Um, but they had all kind of witnessed in, their, in different ways how um, remembering could be a way to move forward, but also to build, you know, new, new futures. Um, they came together and they pledged their commitment to helping the public draw connections between the history of their sites and today's pressing issues. Um, they challenged themselves first and museums around the world to take responsibility for promoting public engagement in the contemporary civic issues that mattered most to the people around them. And I think this is important, the people around them. Who are we talking about? Who are our communities? Um, and it's a subject we'll be touching on a lot today. Um, this is the founding statement, and you can read, you know, we're historic site museums. Uh, who are committing to the obligation of historic sites to assist the public in drawing connections between the history of our sites and its contemporary implications. They call themselves, um, they call themselves sites of conscience and they made this commitment. Today we are about 300 members, close to 300 members around the world in 46 countries and we are still debating and pushing ourselves to really understand how to put this founding statement into practice. What does it mean to help the public draw connections between our historic sites and the contemporary issues that matter to them? How do we do this? When do we do it? Does, how does it work? Evaluating it, all of these are questions. Um, in the past 10 years or so since the coalition was formed, um, a lot of institutions in the museum field in the United States and around the world have advanced the idea that museums should serve as centers for civic dialogue and civic engagement. There is not exactly a consensus about what this means. What does civic engagement mean? But lots of institutions have put forward their definitions and issued challenges to the field to recognize the importance of civic engagement and explore what they can represent in various local contexts. Our members, are, when we were founded, recognized that activating, having civic engagement, enabling civic engagement, um, and really making their sites to be places for new centers for civic engagement in contemporary issues would require deliberate new approaches. And they defined the vision of sites of conscience along three principles, which is using history of the site, telling history through the site itself, designing public programs that allowed people, encouraged people to talk openly with each other, not just with the guide, not just with the educator, not just with the docent, but with each other um, across differences, and to talk openly about the past and its legacies today. And finally, as somebody was asking, provide opportunities for people to get involved in these issues. And this looks very, very different depending on the site. So we'll be talking a little bit more about you know, what that looks like. Um, so these were the principles that defined sites of conscience 10 years ago. They're still the same principles that we use today, though they look very different. And um, yesterday, I think some of you must have heard Adam Goodhart say, places have an eloquence. So how do you tap this eloquence to actually um, be, be um, spaces for civic engagement on today's issues 
uh, in a way that is conscious and, and careful. So touching on your point about the, sacred, the sacrality of these places, how do you really harness this history um, to move from past to present and memory to action? That's sort of the hallmark of sites of conscience. I'm gonna share a couple of examples um, of, as I said, of different approaches. This got very loud, should I? <laughs> no, don't move farther, that's not gonna help you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I'm going to start with uh, the Lower East Side Tenement Museum, which many of you are probably familiar with. Um, the Lower East Side in New York is a neighborhood that has been shaped and reshaped by generations of immigrants from every corner of the world. Today, nearly 40% of the people living in the neighborhood were born in one of 37 different countries. 60% speak a language other than English at home. And in these packed streets and cramped apartments, identities and cultures have blended, mixed, and clashed every day for nearly 300 years. The Lower East Side Tenement Museum is a tenement building at 97 Orchard Street that an estimated 7,000 immigrants from over 20 different nations called home between 1863 and 1935. The museum's founders recognized that this site had great potential to contribute to an interest in and respect for diversity in the most literal sense. How did different people live together? So the museum carefully researched who lived in the building at different moments in time and recreated the immigrant family's apartments to look as they did when they lived there. Today, visitors to the, apartment, uh, to the museum tour the tiny apartments and they learn about the everyday life of the family that lived in the apartment how they lived and worked, what rights and benefits they had, what struggles they encountered. Then visitors are invited to draw a connection between the building's history and their own personal experiences. And then from there, move into discussion about questions that we're still facing today. What does it mean to be American? Who gets to decide, for example? At the end of the program, at the end of the tour, visitors are given a brochure titled 10 Ways to Make a Difference with information on how to become involved in the issues discussed at the museum, as well as how to become involved in the museum itself. I think this, this particular example is really important because the museum works very hard to avoid dictating specific contemporary lessons on the, of the past, and also to avoid instrumentalizing the past to provide perspective on the debates of today, which as you know are very divisive around immigration particularly. Instead what the museum tries to do is to serve as a catalyst for ongoing, changing discussion on deliberately open questions like what does it mean to be a citizen? Who should be allowed to come into the country? Who should decide? Open-ended questions. So this is one example of a site of conscience. Um, the next example is completely different from the Tenement Museum. It's from a different part of the world. It remembers a completely different history, and I'm sharing it with you because I think it's very relevant to what, uh, to what um, Barbara's gonna talk about. And this image that you're seeing over here and the empty piece of land is District 6, a neighborhood in Cape Town. This picture was taken about six or seven years ago. Um, under apartheid, before, uh, before the enactment of a certain law, it used to be a very bustling, multi-ethnic uh, community that lived in District 6. 
under apartheid, a law was passed uh, to make District 6 a whites-only neighborhood, and people were ousted from their homes overnight. They were driven to all parts of the city. Their homes were raised to the ground, and this entire piece of land was just simply uh, created as an empty space to create more buildings. Um, one of the buildings that survived at, in the District 6 neighborhood was a Methodist church, and people started coming back to this community, people who were residents of the neighborhood started coming back to the church to remember and to talk and to uh, really try to piece together the memories of the neighborhood that had just overnight vanished. One of the things that they did right in the beginning was to uh, place a large canvas on the floor of the church and they invited people to come in and literally write in their memories of the neighborhood. So people wrote, they were writing the names of the streets and they would identify their home, their, you know, the, the beauty parlors, the barbershops, the restaurants. Um, and through this process of people coming together, coming back to the community, the District 6 Museum was born. Today, it's an international destination. People come from all over the world to visit the District 6 Museum. But its journey has really gone from being a center for remembering into a center for really activism. Um, one of the things that community members, because this is a community museum, it is not um, a museum run sort of by the state or by the city or by um, heritage professionals, though they have several working on staff there. Uh, it was really from the community that it came. Uh, one of the first things that they did was organize for land reparations so that people could recover their homes. Um, and the picture that you see in the background over here, the black and white picture, is actually the first court hearing on land reparations that was held at the District 6 Museum. Today, the museum's work is really about urban planning. Um, this, if, you, if you look at the picture, that this piece of land is still empty. It's a piece of prime property in the heart of Cape Town. And there's a lot of debate about what should happen to this site now. Um, it, there's a lot of business interest, there's a lot of state interest, and there's a lot of community interest. And it's also very hard for people to now come and live in this space because the land is still being recovered. So this is the new civic issue that they're taking on. Um, so very quickly, I'd, I, it's, so we can move on, just to give you a sense of, I've talked about individual sites and, and their work uh, to uh, bring, bring together community members to talk about the issues of the past that the site remembers, but also to address common contemporary challenges. Um, and one of the things that we've done as a coalition is to really bring together historic sites, museums, memorials, alongside other institutions to form partnerships um, around contemporary issues that they're wanting to address. So all over the world we have these networks. Uh, I'm going to talk very quickly about a network that we have in the US, which is the Immigration Sites of Conscience Network. Um, this map, I'm afraid, I'm sorry, is really outdated. It only shows some of the museums that are involved. Um, but it um, includes um, immigration sites remembering immigration histories, uh, as well as civil rights uh, histories, um, sites like Ellis Island that um, remember immigration policy, as well as sites like um, the Japanese American National Museum, which remembers the history of the immigration history of a particular ethnic group. And they came together and they decided to create new public programs that use the history, the specific history of their site. Um, to raise, um, to, to bring people in to talk about the contemporary aspects of immigration that they were facing in their communities um, and launch these new public programs. Um, 
I don't think I have time to give you an, another example. If I have time at the end, I, I'll try and get it in. Um, but this is just one of the ways um, that, again, the sites are coming together and trying to create new forms for dialogue to address contemporary issues. A and the actions that people are invited to take around immigration, for example, look very, very different. Uh, I'll talk more about the t different actions later. Um, and maybe I'll start uh, with uh, Barbara. Would you sure. like to go ahead? Okay, let me, since we're recording this, actually, let me. Do you want me to drive? My, yeah, sure. You're welcome to drive. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Well, I'm just going to take it off, so. Good morning, everybody. How is everybody doing? Oh, you don't? Come on now. Good morning, everybody. Thank you. I'm from Durham, North Carolina. My name is Barbara Lau, and I'm the director of the Pauli Murray Project. And we are really almost not even a site. We are brand new to this. Um, we, uh, as you'll see later in the PowerPoint, um, go ahead next. Um, that's good. We uh, actually just in May, with a coalition, made a down payment on Pauli Murray's childhood home. Now. I was very lucky when we walked in because our, our room monitor said, oh, Polly Murray, I read her book. It's like, wow, How anybody else here heard of Polly Murray? Oh, we've got one more, excellent, too. That's fantastic. So part of what I wanna do is just tell you a little bit about her and about how our project sort of came to be and how we maybe a non-traditional way that we're gonna become a historic site. Um, but Polly Murray was born 100 years ago in Baltimore. Um, and one of the questions that we ask is, how is our community, Durham, a part of her story, and how did the history of Durham shape her? So um, I'm not gonna read the slides, I had to condense this, but Polly Murray's roots are from people, mixed race people from the north, white people, uh, slave owners and slaves in the south, in fact, her grandparents in whose house she grew up. Um, one. Her grandmother was born a slave and her grandfather was born free. And so I can only imagine the kind of conversations that they had around her. Uh, but very interested in education and um, very interested in helping to shape this young woman in a specific way, politically and educationally. These are her parents and her siblings. As you can see, there are a lot of them, six of them. But when Polly Murray was three, her mother died from a uh, embolism and her aunt who is standing in the back of this picture looking very stern she was a school teacher who Polly Murray was named for brought her home to Durham to live with the family in Durham she was the only child uh, to do that they grew up in she grew up in this house very modest house in what's called the West End neighborhood which was a pocket African-American neighborhood that when it formed Durham didn't really exist before the Civil War, so in that sense, it has a very interesting history of a place of opportunity. And Robert Fitzgerald came to North Carolina after the Civil War to teach citizenship and literacy, to run for office, to encourage newly freed people to become a part of their communities. And he built this house. And by the time he built this house, he was blind. He was injured when he was a soldier in the in the war. And so Polly talks about how he built himself into this house because he had to feel all of the work that was done and approve it that way. His, his daughter Pauline, the oldest daughter who started teaching when she was 14 because her parents could no longer earn a living, 
She was tall for her age, so she convinced a lot of people that she was older than she was and got her teacher's license and started teaching. She left for a little while, but her husband, like her, was very light-skinned. He was a lawyer, and he, uh, his fellow lawyers encouraged him to pass because he was having a hard time getting clients. So he came home and said to his wife, you know, what about this? And she said, I'm going back to North Carolina. So she came home and was a teacher for almost 75 years. So Polly Murray grew up in Durham, uh, shaped by a very interesting community of business people and activists. Durham had its own Black Wall Street, some really significant businesses that drew a very educated people. Uh, they, those folks started a hospital, they started a college, they built a whole community in Durham that Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois came to visit at the turn of the century and rave about. She graduated from a local high school and then tried to go to college only to find that in the South they only have 11 grades. And to go to college she needed 12. So she had to graduate from high school again. Uh, she went and graduated from Hunter College. And then, uh, you know, she graduated into what? The Great Depression. I mean, you know, uh, the, all the craziness that was New York City. And so she really started seeking uh, her political, her personal, her identity in the world. She wrote a paper when she was in college about her grandfather, which actually became the germ of what later was her book about Durham and her family. But one of the things she did while she was... Uh, uh, young in her 20s was she also looked into her gender identity and her sexual preference and she dressed like a boy and jumped boxcars and fell in love with women and you know um, and you know again I can just only imagine what that was like in the 1930s as a young African-American woman in New York City um, but she after working on a, a uh, death penalty case right here in Virginia getting arrested on a bus for sitting in the wrong seat she decided law school was what she wanted to do. She had tried to go to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill in 1938. And of course, they rejected her because of her race. So she wrote a letter to the president, because he had just been at UNC talking about how progressive the university was. And she was like, progressive? What do you mean? And so because she copied that letter, she was sort of famous for her carbon copies, uh, to Eleanor Roosevelt, it began a friendship that lasted for Eleanor's entire life and um, was a great uh, advisor to Eleanor. But after not being able to go to UNC and working on this case, she decided to go to Har Howard. She graduated as the only woman in the top of her class, which usually meant that you would get a fellowship to Harvard, so she applied. But this time she was using the name Polly, not Anna Pauline, her given name, a gender-neutral name. You know, well, they weren't sure exactly. They wrote back to Mr. Murray, but later found out she was a woman and said, well, I'm sorry, we don't accept women. So she went to UC uh, Berkeley and helped to um, actually work in the 40s on uh, cases of Japanese Americans coming back, trying to reclaim their property. She went on later in life to b uh, get the PhD level uh, law degree at Yale, again, the first African-American woman to do so. But she was really torn her whole life between being a lawyer and an artist, and one of the things she loved to do was write, and she wrote this amazing book in 1956. It was a response to McCarthyism. It was a discussion about why African-American history was a way for us to really understand America and American democracy. 
but it was an amazing book, as the young woman in the back will testify, um, about her family, about early Durham history, and it's been a really important tool for us. She went on to become one of the founders of the National Organization for Women. Are some of you starting to say, why haven't I heard about her? Yeah, and uh, in 1961, but then split with them because she was not satisfied with the way that they handled issues related to African-American women. She was very involved in the civil rights movement, but wrote a letter to the folks organizing the March on Washington complaining that there were no women speaking on the dais, and that was wrong. They finally compromised, and Dorothy Hyde got to sit next to Mrs. King, but nobody got to speak. And uh, she was a poet. She wrote these great poems, um, like this one, about her ideas of citizenship and her ideas about her ancestors and what she thought was possible. After a long career in uh, legal, she went to um, Ghana and helped with the Constitution there. She practiced law in New York City. She uh, litigated a case in Alabama, which was created what we now call jury of your peers that included women and African Americans. She wrote a lot of legislation related to sex discrimination and employment. But she discovered late in her life that maybe all this change she was trying to create that maybe the law wasn't the right place to do this, that, that maybe these were moral questions. So in her 60s, she went back to school again and went to divinity school. Now, this was before the Episcopal Church ordained women. She had to wait for a few years, got two degrees, but was the first African-American woman to be officially ordained by the Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C. in the National Cathedral. And I just love this picture, I couldn't leave it out. But let's come back to Durham. So she often came back for family reunions and stayed involved in the issues. And one of the last things she did in Durham was work, begin the process of convincing our city government to annex her family's cemetery to the previous all-white, all-Christian Maplewood Cemetery, which, like many things in her life, didn't happen until after, many years after she passed uh, she started in the 1970s with that quest, and uh, it didn't happen until 1996. But what does it mean for us to think about Durham as more than tobacco and basketball? And that's what people know about Durham. What does it mean for us to begin to, to uh, counteract that master narrative and think about Durham as the home of Polly Murray, and why should we do that? Um, what is it we can learn from her life? Well, obviously, Talk about freedom struggles. She covers it, she and her family, right? Civil rights, civil war, women's rights, um, you know, employment rights, uh, issues around religion, issues around sexual preference and gender identity. She, who can't see themselves in Polly Murray, right? We all have some connection. And that gives us this really amazing opportunity. I often talk about it as the Venn diagram of all of her identities. And that little space in the middle that we're trying to make bigger. So that overlap is bigger. So uh, as part of a work that I did at the Center for Documentary Studies in, at Duke, we worked with six neighborhoods surrounding Duke's West Campus, uh, white and black, rich and poor neighborhoods. And several of those neighborhoods were trying to reshape the way people thought about them. And one of the things that they wanted to do was to stop being the place where everything was wrong and needed fixing. Not the crime statistic, not the home ownership rate, not any of those things. They wanted to also be seen as a place of assets. 
and they considered their history one of their greatest assets. And so we talked with them about, well, how can we help you do this as documentarians? And we ended up coming up with this idea to do a public art project, which later became known as Face Up, Telling Stories of Community Life. And you might remember that quote from Proud Shoes, that liberation is connected to facing up to the dignity and degradation of all my ancestors. So this gives us great inspiration. And one of the ways to you know, begin to do that is to make monuments, right? So we made some murals. We started with photographs, and 1,500 people participated in a collaborative process that then created murals that look like this. This is on the front of an elementary school. Now, I often ask people, I know you all are from all over the country, and you, this might be a special group. How many of you have seen a monument to an African-American woman that has a name? There we go. One, two, three, four. You guys, most times I go in, nobody. We have five. We have five murals that not only include Pauline Murray's image and represent a big collaborative process, but also include her words because the artist, Brett Cook, that we worked with was very tired of the models never speaking. How come we don't know who they are and what they say? So with all of these murals, there's text. This is the true community mural with a text from a sermon. This is right on the corner of her street. Um, this is where our state historic highway marker is going to go. And this is that quote I was mentioning from Proud Shoes. This is uh, in a newly um, shaped neighborhood that's becoming more and more Mexican-American. And so this is a diptych of Pauli Murray in her vestments and the Virgen de Guadalupe, making a big statement. This happened because Brett Cook got to be friends with a chef in the restaurant next to the studio we got for him. Oh, you draw. Oh, let's do that. But it brought out a lot of people then to this process. So many people came and were participating. This one we call Polly Murray in the World. This is the only one on Duke's property. It was a big fight. And it's surrounded by these big quotes, one from the historian Susan Ware, who said, when looking at 20th century American history, all roads lead to Polly Murray. But also a quote from her family, a quote from people in the neighborhood. Um, and a quote from a scholar at Duke, so trying to sort of put her into context. But then the project, you know, so we have these murals, so what do we do with it? So really beginning to think about how do we help Durham rediscover Polly Murray? How do the lessons from her life and her activism, how do we try to carry that on? And so we founded the Polly Murray Project at the Duke Human Rights Center, and this is our mission and our vision again. I hate when people read the slides, so I'll let you read those for yourself. But you'll notice that these goals are very similar to what Bix was talking about. You know, using history as a tool for social change, documenting stories that are lesser known, providing opportunities for our community to have dialogue, um, thinking about, you know, these ways we use her life as inspiration. And one of the ways we started was uh, we have this steering committee. It's now 22. This not as good at documenting as we were when we first started. Um, and we started asking people to read her books because we realized all we had to do was open the door and then Polly Murray would do some of the rest. So we had book clubs all over town. At churches, you know, book clubs that currently exist. At our public library, you can check out 15 copies of Proud Shoes with your library card. 
there's a waiting list for those. There's two sets of them. So just encouraging people to begin to know who this was. And this book that has got so much about Durham's history in it is very well written. So it's a great read. And it just brings up all those questions like people were talking about. How does this relate to me? How do I see my family in this? How is my family the same or different? What about slavery? What about Reconstruction? What about you know uh, the sort of beginning of Jim Crow? And then we started to have community dialogues. So this one was about the 50th anniversary of the first African-Americans to graduate from what was formerly the all-white Durham High School. We were really worried because at 10 minutes to start, we didn't have too many people. We had 120 people. And at the picture below is a um, school board member talking to a woman who was part of a sit-down in 1957. So some great people. Then we thought, well, Polly Murray's life, it's really complicated. So we collaborated with a local organization to produce a play about her life. We, um, it was amazing. 10 performances, standing ovations, it was a lot of fun. And then finally what we've done, and this brings us back to the topic today, was we were able to, this last May, with a, this these group of neighborhood organizations and a local credit union, purchase her home. And now we're struggling with all the things that all of you know about, you know, water damage and chimneys and, you know, city rules and all those kinds of things. We're just starting in that process. So we decided it had been lived in by people who didn't rent. Um, so we had to do a cleanup. And then we had a community session where we began with some students at a local college who do architectural design to begin to involve the community in thinking about well, what could it be? How could it operate? You know, what did they want to see? Because it has to have that, that value. So that brings me to the end of the PowerPoint, but let me just say that you know, one of the challenges that we faced that, that Bix was talking about is you know, we're not a traditional historic site. There aren't people running up to us saying, oh, a new historic site, let me you know, write you a huge check. You know, There's all the challenges of confronting what some of the boosters and the normal, the story that has been normalized about our community. Not always the most popular work. And so it's been really interesting to sort of bring people into that discussion and try to encourage them to think, like Pauli Murray did, that it's the whole truth that helps us deal with the contemporary issues that it's understanding our past of race relations that's going to help us think about our present, that, it, that understanding the history of urban renewal in our community is going to help us think about the issues of gentrification today. So, you know, we're right in that sort of mix, that chaos of emergence and uh, thinking about what kind of questions are coming to us. You know, we're, we're working a lot with other organizations because we don't really have a site yet. We are hoping to build some exhibition materials on the lawn, because it's going to take a while, and a garden, you know, but uh, it's going to take a while before we're in the house. But really thinking about this place as much more than just a place to learn about Pauli Murray, but as a place that nurtures the kinds of conversations and the kinds of people that are going to continue to do her work, both in our community and beyond. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. You know, it's it's really 
interesting to hear from Barbara. I learned a lot from just listening to um, this presentation. And it also just struck me uh, what a contrast it is uh, in some ways from the District 6 Museum, which was exactly where you were uh, two decades ago, really, or a decade and a half ago. <laughs> I'm sure you will. But I think, you know, one of the things uh, that your your project um, is really illustrative of, of, of is that we often think that we need to have, you know, the site needs to be ready, we need to have the exhibit up, we need to have programming in place, we need to have, you know, tested it out before we invite the community in. And I think yours just flips that whole idea on the head. So thank you for that. And um, now, Lisa Jokin. Bex, thank you for organizing this panel. Yes, it's a pleasure. Great. Um, well, I, I guess I'm speaking from the perspective. I, I'm Lisa Junk, and I'm with the Jane Adams Hull House Museum, and I'm speaking from the position of, from an institution that's been doing um, this kind of work, activating our spaces of memory for the last five years. So, you know, we're not District Six, um, but we're a little bit further along than Polly Murray, and so um, I'm going to talk a little bit about our evolution and the story of how we got to where we are, and I'm going to offer um, some. Um, some of our strategic steps in hopes that they might be relevant to your sites and as um, kind of ways of moving forward for those of you who want to do this work. Um, I'm going to start with some history, though. <laughs> um, Jane Addams was a pioneer social reformer, internationalist, feminist, and peace activist. She's best known as being America's first woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize and for co-founding the Hull House Settlement. Um, now, most of our vi visitors are unfamiliar with the settlement movement, and I know there are a lot of historians in the room, but if you'll indulge me for just a second, I'm an educator, so I have to like give you my little spiel. Um, <laughs> settlement houses were one of the major engines for social reform in the early 20th century. They were a kind of early community center that addressed changing urban conditions after the Industrial Revolution and worked to meet the needs of diverse populations, especially of immigrants. Educated middle and upper class women and men settled in working class neighborhoods and offered an enormous range of classes and programs. These residents, as we call them, weren't working out of a sense of charity, which is what most people think, but in Adam's words, the solidarity of the human race. Adams understood that the residents had much to gain from the, as much to gain from the settlement movement as their immigrant neighbors did. Settlement houses provided women, especially, opportunities for professionalization, community, and social action. Adams worked for peace both in Chicago and around the world, and one of her most famous quotes is that peace is not just the absence of war. She meant that we need to create the conditions for peace to flourish in our homes and in our communities, and she worked daily to create the con these conditions in Chicago's most diverse immigrant neighborhood from 1889 until her death in 1935. This is at a time when um, uh, 68 percent of Chicago was foreign-born or the children of foreign-born parents. Um, Adams and the residents of Hull House advocated for public health, fair labor practices, full citizenship rights for immigrants, public education, uh, recreational space, public arts, women's rights, food security, free speech, and more. And I'm just going to flip through a few historical photos from our collection. Hull House became a laboratory of social change, growing into a 13-building complex that at its height served more than 9,000 immigrants per week. Hull House was a place where the great visionaries of the day came to think and work. Uh, 
John Dewey, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, W.E.B. Du Bois, Eleanor Roosevelt, Upton Sinclair, Frank Lloyd Wright, Emma Goldman, Ida B. Wells Barnett are just a few of the people who came to explore ideas and struggle for social change. Today, the Jane Addams, is this moving by itself? It might be. Um, today, the Jane Addams Hull House Museum is a national historic landmark. It became a museum um, only a few years after 11 of the 13 original Hull House buildings were demolished in 1963 when the University of Sh Illinois at Chicago was built. Hull House residents fought passionately to preserve Hull House and the houses of the neighborhood's low-income residents. Their plea went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and although the case was lost, as a result, the university decided to preserve two of the original buildings, the Hull Home, which you see in the photo here, and the residence dining hall. And we are now a part of the University of Illinois Chicago, so there's a complicated relationship mm -hmm. for you. <laughs> um, for many years, Hull House functioned as a research-oriented museum. It was run by scholars who were passionate about women's history and worked to uncover and document the history of the site. These women worked to professionalize the museum by cataloging our artifacts, growing our collection, and contributing immensely to the body of research. Five years ago, when the museum hired our current director, Lisa Yen Lee, she brought a new vision for the museum that would build upon the strong foundation of the museum's scholarly work and our university affiliation, but that would throw open the doors to a larger and more diverse publics than ever before. Her framework really does match our topic today. She sought to activate our site for a new generation. Now, um, I'm challenged by uh, the Polly Murray story because I always tell visitors that no historical figure is more relevant than Jane Addams. <laughs> I might be biased. So we can just think of it as the continuum. <laughs> I, I, I am biased, but you know, I, I do really believe that the issues that Jane Addams cared about and devoted her life to um, are largely the very same issues that our nation faces today: poverty, food security, labor conditions, public education, social welfare and of course immigration. And so what would it mean for our site to make direct connections between the past and the present and to use Hull House history as a launching pad for questions about social change today? Um, as I said, this has been a five-year process and I'm gonna highlight three of the key programs that have helped us to activate our site. Despite being a relatively well-known site, um, our museum faced all of the typical challenges of historic house museums that you all are familiar with. Um, among them that we were seen as this sleepy old house on campus and a monument to dead white people. Um, and we had you know, not as many visitors as you might think for a National Historic Landmark in an urban area. Um, these challenges, of course, take years to overcome, as well as a unified vision for the site and funding to make it happen. Um, but the very first step that we took, and um, one that doesn't cost that much, is to begin hosting public programs about contemporary social issues, where in the past all of our programs were about history. Um, and, and specifically, we partnered with community organizations and activists, which was a part of the legacy of our site, and we invited them to help imagine programs that would somehow, and, and often very broadly, um, link back to our history. And um, this is important too, we also invited them to use our space um, for their meetings and their programs for free or for really cheap, and that was just one of the ways that we kind of got to know these community organizations and where we were able to offer something that they really needed, which was you know, space and also kind of our advertising power and things like that. Um, 
I, I found that historic sites often take for granted the assets that they have, and um, one of those assets is auditoriums and meeting rooms, um, uh, and another is their cultural capital. I think that organizations, and especially those small community-based nonprofits, they really want to partner with and be affiliated with museums and historic sites because we're seen as these you know, important established organizations in our communities, and um, when, again, we have a large amount of cultural capital. So this image um, is from a number of years ago. Um, this is a public program that we didn't organize that another organization completely put together, so really minimal effort on our part as a museum. But it was this really rockin' event by a group called the Fed Up Honeys, who are um, African-American women thinking about the stereotypes of their communities. Um, this is one of our programs. Um, we host a weekly, as we call it, a modern-day soup kitchen, which is a public program where we talk about the food movement and all these food justice issues that have come to the forefront in the last few years. So once a week, we invite the community in to enjoy a, a bowl of freshly made organic soup um, from one of the great chefs in our city, and then we talk about these issues. Uh, I think I have one more. This is a photo of a, a packed house um, hearing from Grace Lee Boggs, one of um, my activist heroes out of Detroit. Um, we also host programs on sex education, and, and that one's a little bit racy. I can talk to you about that later if you're interested. Um, I, we, I used to host a series called Dance and Democracy where we cleared out all the tables in the dining hall and invited choreographers to do dance workshops for non-dancers to kind of think about what it means to move through space and what that um, contributes to the kind of larger ideals of our history. Um, and we had a labor film series to, um, where we showed just Hollywood films that had labor themes and then we had discussions afterward. Um, this strategy of hosting contemporary public programs, I think, would look very different at different kinds of sites. Um, if you are a historic site with a farm or a plantation, you might decide to host work workshops by local farmers and have lectures with food policy experts in your town. Um, next week, I'm going to be at the Wick Museum and Garden in Philadelphia for a symposium on museums and agriculture. Um, I hope to see some of you there. And um, they've enlivened their space in, in just this way. Um, and if you're feeling concerned because your site's history is not as progressive as what you're hearing from today, say you're at the stately home of a robber baron or a former plantation, <laughs> um, do remember that you know, your site isn't obligated to share the politics of your history, but it might be obligated to explore those politics honestly. A, a plantation site would make a really wonderful location for a pro program on modern day trafficking and slavery, and the robber baron's home would be great for conversations about our current economic climate. Um, and I don't want to name names, but recently um, the, a museum that features a major US general um, called us up because they're, um, they've been reading the um, writings from this person's later life, and they want to become a peace museum. So, you know, there's a lot of potential. Um, again, I recognize that making changes to the sites, to your sites, takes money and time. My second strategy for activating sites of, mem and of memory is um, a very simple change that we made that both transformed our museum and it resulted in a good amount of press, which is always nice. Um, and that is that we started to work on an alternative labeling project where we inserted opportunities for the audience to do more critical thinking about our history and allowed us to test out new interpretation methods. 
In our consumer-driven culture, our visitors are often fed information and expected to buy it wholesale. As, as informal sites of learning, public museums have the potential to encourage critical thinking and questioning and allow our visitors to construct knowledge rather than simply consume it. Visitors should come to our sites to actively engage in history, to wrestle with it, and to participate in the making of its meaning. Certainly, I think that's the reason why many of us love this field. One of the museum's most prized artifacts is a painting from 1898 of a woman named Mary Rose Smith. There is no consensus among scholars or family members about how to describe Rose Smith's and Adam's relationship. Rose Smith is sometimes described in historical records as a prominent Hull House patron, and other times as Adam's companion, her lesbian lover, or her lifelong partner. Not only is this a site of contestation because of the specificity of the language of words like lesbian, which didn't exist in Adam's day, um, but because this aspect of Adam's life is relatively unknown to the general public. And previous curators at Hull House left this painting in storage because they felt like it was too controversial. And again, this is one of the most um, expensive artifacts in our collection. And, and um, it's also by a, a prominent female painter from Chicago at the time. So we took this painting out of the closet, as it were, and, um, we, <laughs> and we created three different labels, and each of them highlighted a different aspect of the history. And we asked visitors to respond to the labels um, by, uh, by choosing the one that they preferred. This alternative labeling project pushed visitors to consider how historical narratives are produced and proliferated. What do we gain when private and non-heteronormative aspects of our national heroes' lives are revealed? and what is lost when they are obscured. We've also offered an alternative reading of other areas of Hull House. Did you know that Adams has a hefty FBI file and was once considered to be America's most dangerous woman? <laughs> well, neither did our visitors until we put that FBI file on display, and we like to put it right next to her Nobel Peace Prize. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we begin to talk honestly about why the work of Adams to empower the poor would be considered so threatening to so many people. Um, and a final note on alternative labeling, you know, all of our sites have skeletons in the closets. Um, and if we're devoted to a celebratory interpretation of our sites, then I think that we per perpetuate the closeting of the very elements that make our historical figures real and challenging and multidimensional. Again, this is why we are in the field, so why don't we share those things with our audience? Um, this year, our museum is seriously investigating the issue of race at Hull House, um, because while the dominant narrative is that Adam's work for racial equality and civil rights for all, she has been criticized for her relationship with the African-American community in Chicago. It's been really hard for us to take an honest look at this part of our history, but we feel strongly that this is the right thing to do. And as a result, I guarantee that there will be changes to our exhibition structure. A final strategy that we've used to activate our site's memory is to rethink our exhibition plan. Hull House is what we call a hybrid house museum right now. Um, it's part museum within a house, so there's lots of exhibits within the historic space, and then it's part historic house museum with the couches and the beds and all of that. Um, in 2010, we completely renovated our permanent exhibi exhibition, doubling the exhibit space and broadly redefining our goals. Our staff took the words of John Berger as a motto for our exhibit, which is, never again will a single story be told as though it is the only one. 
This allowed us to expand our narrative from Jane Addams as charismatic leader, saint, and hero, to telling dozens of extraordinary stories of both reformers and immigrants who moved through our space. We also set aside one of our biggest galleries for a rotating, community-curated exhibit that we call Unfinished Business. Unfinished Business interprets the legacy of Hull House around contemporary social justice issues. We work with community members to curate these exhibits and create active sites for inquiry and participation. For the first year, our topic was juvenile justice. Jane Addams and the residents of Hull House helped to found the nation's first juvenile court in 1899 with a vision of rehabilitating and protecting the dreams of youth. Today, many argue that the juvenile justice system does more violence to youth than it does to protect them. With 70% of youth today incarcerated for nonviolent crimes and the majority being youth of color, this exhibit allows us to ask, what happened to the progressive origins of the court? Do we need to return to that early vision, or do we need a new vision of juvenile justice for the 21st century? Um, to help us answer these questions, we turn to youth inside and outside of the system, to parole officers, prison activists, and prison abolitionists. They became our community curators. We asked an artist to illustrate the history of the founding of the juvenile court in whimsical panels. Um, and we asked the community to help create action stations, as we call them. These were funded by the International Sites of Conscience. And they helped visitors to engage with the critical issues of today's juvenile court system. Um, my favorite is a postcard project we did. This, this is not our project. It comes from the community activists that we were working with. Um, they're fighting to close down um, Tam's Supermax prison in downstate Illinois because they feel like it's violating human rights. And um, they have a project where they reach out to those prisoners who are in solitary confinement for um, 23 hours a day by, um, by, by writing poetry to them. And so we created a postcard, and we had a, a station with a stack of poetry books, and we asked people to copy down poems or to write their own so that we could mail them to the prisoners. Um, and two weeks ago, we unveiled our new unfinished business exhibit on arts education. The arts were central to the work of the settlement, so much so that the new building, the first new building of the Hull House complex was an art gallery. Reformers insisted on the cultural rights and creative expression for all people and believed that the arts were central to a thriving democracy. Their legend continues to inform Chicago's vibrant and diverse cultural landscape of teaching artists, storefront theaters, and youth-centered arts organizations. And um, this exhibit, as I said, has been up for two weeks, so these are brand new images. But um, we profiled a number of teaching artists, both from Hull House history and those who are working in Chicago today. Um, this is one of the um, Hull House artists from years past, and we talked about what it means to be a teaching artist and to do this kind of work and what are the challenges and what are the politics of it. Um, this is just a fun interactive that we had. One of the Hull House teaching artists from the early 20th century traveled around the world and collected folk dances because she believed that folk dancing would lead to a more peaceful world. And so um, in big footprints on the floor, we created one of her dances, the Tuttle Clog, and it's been really fun to watch visitors try to sort out how to do that yeah, dance. Really. <laughs> Um, we also have a floor-to-ceiling community loom that was created by a local teaching artist, and um, it's empty in this picture right now, but um, throughout the course of the year, visitors are invited to use the loom, and we have instructions and facilitators, and we'll be creating a giant map of Chicago in three pieces. 
Um, you'll see in the back of this photo, there's also some graffiti in the wall from one of our local teaching artists. And it was kind of a big deal for us to put graffiti inside the walls, on the walls of Hull House, but I think it was a really important addition to this project. Um, we also have a working printing press and someone to facilitate, one of our educators, to teach people how to use this press. Um, we had five artists from the city create blocks, um, and, and this is part of a new postcard project where um, they've created these really beautiful images about the arts, and we're asking questions of art funding, and so um, we've got the addresses for Arnie Duncan and um, our CEO of Chicago Public Schools, and you can write them a little letter about why it's important to fund the arts. Um, we're also um, starting to do work with other communities um, outside the walls of our museum, um, thinking about how we can lend our services as folks who know how to think about stories and create exhibits and um, kind of offer those to people who would like those services. Um, I want to close with a quote from Jane Addams that's about her vision for Hull House. And I would like to propose that it's an excellent vision for museums and historic sites today. She says, the only thing to be dreaded in the settlement is that it loses its flexibility, its power of quick adaptation, its readiness to, create, to change its methods as its environment may demand. It must be open to conviction and must have a deep and abiding sense of tolerance. It must be hospitable and ready for experiment. Thanks. Um, before we open up to questions, I just want to make one quick point, and that is, you know, the two um, examples that you've heard from Barbara and from Lisa are of people, uh, are of sites remembering this history of people who were pretty radical and whose work is still considered pretty radical today. Um, but. The point I want to make is that this is not, uh, what we're trying to do, activating places of memory, is not confined to sites that are very political. Um, in, within the coalition, we have a huge diversity of opinions, political perspectives, and also um, types of institutions, from government institutions to community projects to very uh, grassroots kinds of projects, and also you know, projects that have been really funded uh, through the mandates of certain people's um, um, funding streams, let's be frank. Um, and so uh, keeping in view the, the types of political actions, uh, or the types of actions that people uh, invite uh, the visitors to take really, really depends on what the site is able to do, stands for, and what its history is about. And I think that's really important for us to emphasize. So anyway, just to, to preface that, I know many of you will probably uh, come from sites that might be um, very specific to your local context, might be funded by your city or your state. So I just wanted to put that out there. And really, let's talk. Marty. I can tell you, uh, and yeah, the question was if, if I could share uh, about what were the three alternative labels um, from, yeah, from the Rose Smith portrait. It's, it's a little bit important how we framed it because we, we felt like the labels shouldn't 
ask visitors to answer the question, well, was she or wasn't she? You know, I don't think we as visitors actually get to decide that about other people, okay? So, so really the way that we framed this was, um, you know, the first uh, label was a classic art history label. It talked about the artist. You know, it said nothing about the sitter. And the artist is extraordinary and, you know, it's, it was a great label. Um, the second label talked um, about the emotional relationship that Jane Addams shared with Mary Rose Smith and it gave some of those details um, that, that gave you a sense of their relationship. Um, and then the third one talked a little bit about their relationship, but it, it more broadly contextualized um, women's relationships in that era and how they looked different than they do today, which sort of helps us understand why it's, it's literally hard to label this, this relationship because we don't quite have the language for it. And just a very quick point, were you asking people if they had to, to make a choice, mm. visitors, if they had to vote for one, or could they combine? Or were we asking people to vote or could they combine? Yeah, we, we put post-it notes out and we kind of said, vote for your favorite, but we had a lot of people who wrote us long commentary. We sort of told people that they could rewrite it if they want to. Um, one of my favorite uh, um, post-it notes, and I've got like a drawer of them <laughs> somewhere, is that um, uh, it was from like a nine-year-old girl who said, you know, you didn't tell me anything about who Mary Rose Smith was. <laughs> we gave her the wife treatment is what we did. <laughs> and so um, actually in the new uh, exhibit of uh, the new exhibit that we curated last year, I rewrote the label. The alt that alternative labeling project no longer exists. We have a new alternative labeling project. And um, and we took all of that feedback and created a new label that does talk about who, who was this woman. And um, we kind of took a show, don't tell approach. And we put, a, we put up photographs of the two of them sharing their lives together, a love poem that Adams writes um, to Rose Smith as a means of kind of taking all of, that, all of the, that feedback that we received and incorporating it into the permanent exhibition. Thanks, Lisa. Anybody else, any questions? I'd like to ask people to comment, and Barbara, if you have something to say. Well, no, I was just going to say, I mean, I think we, you know, the thing is that if we don't connect people to the present, then we just become the sort of pass-through. You know, I mean, we've all done this. How many, walk, you know, you walk through a gallery and you kind of just size it all up and you keep on going. You know, and that, that the kind of engagement that we want are the people that are going to stop and read something or get involved in something. and so without connecting that to contemporary 
issues, I think that's even harder to do. So just even as what kind of institutions we want to be. But I mean, then you get into the whole bigger questions about the content, you know, and who, we, who are our visitors? Who are we accountable to? You know, who are we responsible to? I mean, I think mm -hmm. as we think about ourselves differently and broaden those, it, it behooves us to think about these different strategies of engaging with folks and thinking about ways that people already engage, you know, so you're suggesting having people come in and host their activities. How do people already do this? I mean, we're not the ones to invent it. How do we just become a piece of, an, of another circle instead of trying to create a new circle and inviting people in? I mean, that's, a, you know, the kind of community organizing strategy that, that makes something just more feasible and more doable as we become a part of instead of always being, it's about me. Me, I'm in the middle, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that this, that's a really different idea and approach and attitude that is hard to change, you know, because it's not what our patrons and our donors and other people expect. So how do we change our own culture in a way to be more inclusive? I think it's really hard work. Yeah, um, I actually uh, will share a quick example. It's very, very short, because I think it's uh, important for people to understand that there's so many different ways that people can approach this question. And okay. so this is Angel Island Immigration Station. It is a state park site. Um, they, uh, you know, after, I'm sure most, most of you know the history over here. Um, after the Chinese Exclusion Act, people were detained there, et cetera. Their program, they're, they're a difficult site to get to. You have to take a ferry over there. They do not have visitors who just walk in. So you have to plan ahead, et cetera. So their program, what the, the way they decided to approach the question of activating their site was to do, is to do a, a program with high school middle school students. Um, and what they do is they bring together, this is, these are pictures from a, a, a program they did with eighth graders. Um, and they take, you know, they take the students on a tour, um, and then they show them, on, as you saw in the picture before, you see the, the wall over there with the inscriptions. Those are poems that people wrote when they were incarcerated, or detained over there. Um, and the, the starting of their uh, program, their educational program, is that they have these papers with the uh, poem translated, and they ask people, you know, students to read, and, and then they start talking about the poem. And, um, one of the first questions they ask, what feelings do you think the poet had, et cetera, et cetera. And then they get into the question of how they got to be there. Um, how are these people held there? And you know, it comes out that um, when Angel Island was in operation, the federal government was deciding who, sh who should be held there, who should be allowed to enter based on race, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then they ask the students, what do you think, which of these reasons do you think uh, is, is fair? Uh, it, uh, were, those, were those reasons fair then? Are they fair now? Are there other reasons that you think would be better? And then they move into this question, and I think this is you know, very, very simple but important thing. Um, they ask the young people, what do you think is fair for you today? We're not talking about immigration. We're not talking about you know, sort of bigger public policy questions. We're asking about you in your classroom, in your life. 
What is fair? What, when have you experienced unfairness? What did you do about it? And what would you do going forward if you saw someone being treated unfairly? And that really breaks it down to the very personal, very local level, and it's a way for people who are, um, you know, uh, who is, is experiencing the history uh, in a uh, that in a way that connects to their daily life um, now, and finding lessons from it that they draw out themselves um, by identifying for them, them th themselves and hearing from other people what they would like to do, how they would try to you know, sort of envision a new different world for themselves in their little community. So that's just one example of how they've dealt with that. I can speak to that. Almost, we're almost out of time. I just want to speak to that too because Hull House being a part of the University of Illinois Chicago is also a state institution and um, what my best advice and, and maybe everyone already does this but this is something that I've learned in working there is that it's so important to have um, you know at, whether it's an advisory board or your trusted folks that you go to but to find those people in the community who support your work who will stand by your work who you know at, at a university there's a certain principle of academic freedom and I think that even though we're a state institution it allows us to do this work because there's this understanding that this is you know how we go forward and and you know we we get into trouble all the time <laughs> we get you know we get not you know more Ask more from instead of Permission. Yeah, well, and, 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 and not just trouble in the sense of like, oh, people trying to be annoying or something, but, but people who sort of say, well, what, you've done three programs on Palestine and you haven't done any on from Israel's perspective or whatever that might be. And, and we sort of listen to that, first of all, but also often end up going back to the, the people we have in our corner and if they'll write letters of support if, they're, if it's something that they support or they'll have those deep conversations with us about how to move forward and, and I feel confident in my work because I know that those people are standing behind me and if it was just me on my own trying to do this stuff, I, it would be really scary. There is more information about all of these. On, we left them on the back table, so there's folders, and we may, I don't know that we brought enough, but, you know, and I'm sure that any, we can pass along more information to any of you that are interested in these specific projects. Yeah, absolutely. And he's out of CD. I see. For recording. Well, thank you all for coming, and it was <laughs> fabulous to have you. Uh, evaluation. Oh, evaluation. Thank you for the reminder. We have evaluation forms that please, and they should be on your table. Please fill them out. They're really important for us to know um, how we did. Yeah. <laughs>